This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Uh, We're bringing together some amazing experts for today's episode. Discussing anxiety. Is it on the rise? What are the long-term effects of the pandemic? Not one, but two doctors joining us to take my questions and answer yours as well. We're discussing the importance of finding your tribe as a woman, that safe space to have real talk. In our legal clinic, Ludmilla Malava on hand to look behind the headlines from the retirement age in the UAE to dodgy car parks. And we were joined by the general manager of the Anantara, Sabanias Island. A little sneak peek about what's ahead on this weekend's treasure hunt. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Now, we thought the spike in anxiety was perhaps pandemic-related. Unfortunately, it seems like it's not going anywhere. We are going to be talking anxiety over the next hour with not one, but two fantastic experts. Before, though, and quite frankly, any excuse to have a little chat with Ryan Reynolds, the actor has struggled with anxiety his old life, and he's talking now about how he coped with it as someone in the public eye. I feel like I have two parts of my personality that one takes over when that happens. When I would go out on, like, Letterman, I remember I'd be standing backstage before the curtain would open and I would, I would think to myself, I'm going to die. I'm literally going to die here. But as soon as that curtain opens, and this happens in my work a lot too, it's like this little guy takes over and he's like, I got this. And I'm this different person. And it's like I leave that interview going, God, I'd love to be that guy. <laughs> I think that really speaks to how an awful lot of people feel that masking the the coping in your own way so if you are struggling with anxiety you want to share what's working for you or indeed you need some expert insights do get in touch you can be anonymous if you prefer because joining us live on the line is dr sarah rathme licensed psychologist and managing director of thrive wellbeing center how are you today dr sarah i'm good and you yeah i'm really good really really good thank you it's funny thinking about anxiety and for me getting sounds it's such a cliche but getting into nature Being outside, not having any phone signal does absolute wonders for me. Um, And we are hearing from people about what's what's working for them as well. But we're talking an awful lot, and rightly so, about mental health. Is this something of a positive of the pandemic, that awareness has been increased? Absolutely. I think one of the silver linings, if not the silver lining of the pandemic, not to say that I'm happy that it happened at all, Uh, But it's this idea that we are starting to recognize and talk about and reduce a lot of the stigma around some of the common mental health challenges like anxiety. And it is so important because what we've seen is that a large proportion of the population here and all over the world will experience it over the course of their life. Mm -hmm. So talking about it, normalizing it, knowing what to look out for and finding access to self-help resources as well as professional support is incredibly important. Dr. Sarah, please forgive my bluntness, but I don't think my granny's generation had the levels of anxiety that, that we, you know, some, some have and some, some talk about. Is this a, a bit of a modern phenomenon or has it just always been the case but perhaps was mislabeled or misunderstood in the past? With anything, I think there's lots of different layers to it. So first of all, anxiety is something that has been present always because anxiety is designed to protect us, right? If we are afraid of of heights, afraid of confined places, afraid of the dark, then our ancestors were better able to protect themselves from falling off cliffs and from nocturnal predators and things like that. Saber-toothed tigers. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. So there's a function and it's there for a reason. The problem is when anxiety goes into overdrive. And I think it's difficult to separate our generation from our grandparents' generation for a multitude of reasons. I think there are certain modern phenomena that might have contributed to or exacerbated things like social media, as well as the the pandemic. But like you said, Helen, if people don't know what they're looking for, if people are, are scared or reluctant to talk about it, then there's no way to really assess mm-hmm. the prevalence of that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask then, what does it look like? How it manifests? What are you seeing in clinic um, and in terms of you know representations of anxiety globally? 
There are a lot of different things to look out for. And some of those things can be behavioral, they can be cognitive, they can be emotional, they can be physical. A lot of what we do is screen people using a pretty widely utilized tool. It's called the GAD7, and we do actually have it up on our website if anybody wants to, to, to take a look and get their scores privately. But we look for things like feelings of nervousness, not being able to stop worrying, having difficulty relaxing. A lot of people don't know, but sometimes anxiety can manifest as irritability. It can be disruptive to our sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many different things that we're observing in the clinic. But the thing is, everything I just described, all of us experience from time to time. So we start to become concerned when it's something that's happening a lot. And it's something that is persisting for a couple of weeks mm -hmm. and there's no or more and there's no clear reason for it. So if you're at work, for example, and you have a big deadline coming up and you're experiencing this stuff, that's relatively normative and hopefully it will subside after the deadline is over. But if it's something that's more pervasive and impacting your ability to function in your day-to-day -day life, that's when we start to become a bit concerned and we want to address it right away. Healthy Habits on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We're talking anxiety this hour. Um, joining us live on the line right here is licensed psychologist, managing director of Thrive Wellbeing Centre, Dr. Sarah Rasmi. And we had a listener get in touch earlier sharing their experience about anxiety and turning it around. So every time I see someone sick in my family, I always start expecting that something worse is going to happen. I always start getting onto the Google and searching for more and more information about why it's happening, why, what are these symptoms uh, and what does it lead to. Every time I do not find a proper answer, I always keep thinking that something worse is going to happen. I had to completely stop Googling for any information related to health. Health anxiety. Dr. Sarah, I feel like this has been a serious uh, side effect of COVID. Is this something you're treating in clinic as well? Yes, absolutely. We had it before and we were seeing it from time to time, but it really shot up, especially around the time of the lockdown. And it was increasing for quite a bit and then, and then stabilizing. It sounds like this listener's you know, she knows what she needs to do. Just stay away from Google. Dr. Google, not to be trusted. <laughs> I say it time and time again on the show. What else can be useful in terms of managing those symptoms, especially if they are becoming intrusive thoughts? What's really important is to try and really shore up what we're doing in terms of our lifestyle. So people often underestimate the benefits of eating healthily and in particular exercise, cardiovascular exercise. It's very, very, very important. Getting good night's sleep is essential as well. So once we kind of have that lifestyle stuff taken care of, what we can do is we can evaluate if, if medication might be indicated, and it sometimes is, and that can be determined through a psychiatric consultation. But Beyond that, with the psychologist, what we can do is we can work on changing the way that we think about things so uh, and restricting our behaviors. So with the example that we just heard, somebody who has the desire to turn to Dr. Google, which is never a good idea, what they can start to do is, is challenge, how likely is that to happen? Am I seeing a full picture of, of what happens when somebody presents with these symptoms. If somebody presents with these symptoms, does it necessarily mean that it's going to lead to this outcome that's really scaring me? Mm -hmm. So we can debate with ourselves and decatastrophize uh, as in addition to the, the lifestyle factors that I mentioned previously and engaging in some relaxation exercises and techniques. Dr. Sarah, I know at Thrive you also work a lot with um, teens and young people. We've had a message here through social media saying, anxiety in teenagers, when do you consider an issue to seek help or when is it considered normal teenager behaviour? Our daughter is an overthinker, overthinks conversations with friends, her body, exams, her future. We find it difficult to judge when it's normal teenage insecurity or if it's a problem that needs help. What we're seeing on a global scale, as well as here in the UAE, is a rise as well in children and teenagers who are experiencing symptoms of anxiety. And in the U.S., they've now recommended screening all kids between the age of 8 and 18 Whoa. for some of the symptoms that we discussed before. So my feedback is, if you're asking the question, then it's probably worth 
getting an assessment done because we know that prevention and promotion are best, but if we need to intervene, the earlier, the better. But when we really become worried, like I was saying previously, is when we find that it's creating an impairment in daily functioning. It's disrupting our ability to connect with people. It's disrupting our ability to engage at, at school or at work. This is when we really become concerned. And with kids, I would suggest as well, touching base with their classroom teacher, as well as any counselor or psychologist that might be at the school to see if the same worrying behaviors or issues that they're noticing at home are being noticed in a different context. I'm really nervous to ask you this, Dr. Sarah, but is there a danger about talking about mental health too much? Because it sounds like there could perhaps be children thinking, okay, well, I have been worried. Does that mean I've got anxiety? Or, you know, this kind of snowball effect of children getting a diagnosis, getting a prescription, and it becoming almost contagious. Am I picking up on the wrong messages here because I feel like screening every child? That just seems excessive to me. So I think what you're really asking about is the labeling and the diagnosing. Mm. And I don't think that someone needs to announce that we're screening for anxiety, but just asking very gently primary care physician, you know, how have you been doing? Are you worried about things? Have you noticed that you're feeling nervous? These sorts of questions might allow the child to reflect on and share something that they otherwise might not have noticed Mm -hmm. or might not have thought to bring up at all. So to this listener who got in touch on social about the teenage daughter, would you mind just quickly kind of demystifying what might happen should they decide to seek professional help? You know, what might happen in a typical session with with you or one of the team at Thrive? So clinicians have different approaches, but generally what we do is that we have the first session with the parent in order to hear from the parent about the child's development, the history, their perception of what the challenge is, any information that the child might have shared with the parent. And then from the second session onwards, we will typically meet with the child and gather that information as well. When working with children or adolescents, a lot of the work is family work because we can make progress and changes within the therapy room, but that really needs to be maintained and supported at home and the same with school. So we have to engage all of the relevant stakeholders in order to work towards the shared goal of improving the mental health and well-being of the young person. Dr. Sarah Rasmi, thank you so much. Um, really value your thoughts on this and the work that you guys are doing at Thrive. You are there in JLT, Thrive Wellbeing Centre. If people do want to reach out, by all means, drop me a message and I'll happily send over the link. Dr. Sarah Rasmi, always appreciate your time. I know you're incredibly busy, so thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us here on Dubai I 103.8. This content is for informational purposes only. If you would like to seek medical treatment, please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalised advice and diagnosis. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Talking anxiety this hour, and I was going to say I'm surprised by the number of messages we've had. I am not surprised in the slightest by the number of messages we've had on this topic. I really hope you're okay out there, and if you do need some expert advice, you're in the right place, because joining us live from the States is Dr. Craig Sorchuk, the Division Chair of Integrated Behavioural Health at the Mayo Clinic, Um, a licensed psychologist, um, and who better, really, to take my questions and yours on all things anxiety. Doctor, how are you today? or this morning what time is it there yeah it's uh, about 20 to 7 in the morning uh, out here in uh, rochester minnesota but i tell you that uh, farmer's kitchen and the picnic sound great (laughs) it'd be a heck of a commute to get over there i it it would absolutely be worth it though we'd love to see some face painting and, 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 and grilling and i think in honesty I think having these things to look forward to is is actually really crucial for an awful lot of people at the minute. I I don't know if it's the same in the States right now, but Dubai feels very, very, very busy indeed. There's an awful lot of overwhelm and burnout going on. And as I said, we've had lots of messages, some anonymous and some some people wanting to ask you questions as well. What are you seeing um, when it comes to anxiety coming, coming into clinic there? 
Well, I tell you, uh, prior to the pandemic, it's not like uh, mental health was hurting for business uh, beforehand. The world at baseline is really a stressful place with um, a variety of uncertainties that, that go on and just, you know, day-to-day stressors. But certainly over the course of the pandemic, those rates have really increased as well. I wanted to put this question to you that's come in anonymously on our text line 4001 to join us on the show this afternoon, because I think it's going to speak to an awful lot of people. So Anonymous is saying, at various points in life, I've had periods of months of anxiety where I was tearful, distracted by intrusive thoughts and really unable to say I enjoyed my life. I'm now having CBT, taking um, taking meds. I've cut out all drinking um, because it makes a big impact. Exercising loads, eating well and feeling hugely better than I did even a few months ago. However, I do feel constantly slightly on edge. Not ever distressed like I was, but like I'm always on. My chest feels tight and churny like I'm about to have an exam. But most of the time, every day. I guess I'm wondering, is there an argument to just accept this? There might be a case for accepting it because trying to improve things almost makes it worse, like another chore on the list. I think an awful lot of people live like this, Doctor. What do you think? Yeah, if if you think about it, I mean, there's a lot of great detail in that one question. So at one level, you think of anxiety as a very activating state. Um, You know, it gets the body charged up. It's a state of activation. But at what point does it become too much of a good thing where it feels like you're constantly on? Um, The the caller also had um, given some additional information about the likely association between depression and anxiety. I mean, in about 60% of the cases, depression will uh, coincide with that. So that's where you see kind of that loss of interest, difficulties motivating, you know, themselves. So you get this interplay between the anxiety ramping you up and and the depression kind of bringing you down. But they also described a lot of really, really good treatment-related things uh, that are going on there. At one level, some health-related habits with diet and exercise and working on sleep, and then cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a skills-based intervention, and in fact, the most evidence-based type of intervention for anxiety. So getting connected with some right treatment. There is a level in there that they mentioned about um, acceptance and we always got to remember that acceptance doesn't mean that we're like okay with things and things are totally fine. It just helps to take the fight out of our symptoms. So sometimes with fighting too much with the symptoms, trying to suppress them, trying to forge, you know, too far and too fast ahead, sometimes inadvertently winds us up into that cycle as well. I I was nodding along to that message when I read it and to you talking there because I think as I said, I've been a bit overwhelmed by the number of messages we've had. I want to want to put this yeah. one to you because it sounds like um, this gentleman could do with some help saying, I don't know if this qualifies as anxiety or not, but over the last few years, I've started having anxiety attacks. It's like I get on a flight, unless it's nice and open, I start hyperventilating and panicking. I get in an elevator, it stops in the middle, I start feeling claustrophobic and panicking. I'm a 40-year-old male, and normally this isn't looked upon favourably. I first felt claustrophobia almost 20 years ago when I got trapped in an elevator. Before that, I didn't have this issue. The other day, I got stuck in traffic in the Dubai Mall parking, and I had to open my windows and take deep breaths just to calm myself. How do I tackle these issues? And again, I think this this speaks to the point of, am I an anxious person? Do I just live with this? Is this what I do and how I respond in in certain situations? Or are there things that I can do and change and try in order to actually get to the root cause? What would your response be to this listener, Dr. Craig? Yeah, well, that listener is human. So there's usually like at least a third, if not 40% of the population at some point in time in their lifetime will experience a panic attack. And and this listener was describing a variety of classic panic-related symptoms. It's almost like an alarm system that goes off, almost like a false alarm. Our body just has this surge of adrenaline, our heart you know, rate starts pounding, um, can be difficulties breathing, we have that sense of agitation. And sometimes, you know, that panic attacks can start off by coming out of the blue, um, but they tend to then become associated with certain types of situations. So this listener described a variety of situations in which they likely feel trapped or a little bit claustrophobic. So whether it be on a plane, stuck in traffic, in an elevator as well too. 
So in addition to some of those um, uh, lifestyle factors that we just chatted about a, a moment ago, um, panic attacks are a very treatable type of condition. Now, there can be some interventions that people do in learning relaxation exercises and breathing control strategies, which can be helpful. But for people that often go along and experience a recurrence of those panic attacks, Working in cognitive behavioral therapy, we help people develop what are called exposure strategies, gradually but repeatedly teaching people how to induce those uncomfortable physical sensations, like breathing through a straw, spinning in a chair, doing head lifts, which sounds a little bit weird, you know, <laughs> doing something like that. But what we're trying to do is actually under very predictable, controllable gradual and repeated types of circumstances start to induce those symptoms more and more and more. And in fact, what happens is the body actually gets bored with them. I know it sounds like opposite land, uh, but learning how to approach those symptoms and how to build up tolerance for them, and in fact, getting the body bored by those symptoms is a core feature of what we do in cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, what we've been hearing today is a lot around, as you say, kind of circumstantial anxiety that can lead to yeah. panic attacks. I had quite a lot of prenatal anxiety. I used to get very mm -hmm. upset about going to scans. I had a lot of kind of health anxiety around, you know, my baby and things like that. And I'm happy to say that that is that has passed. But aside from circumstances and situations, do you feel like there are some people who are just naturally more anxious? I've got a couple of people in my mind who I'm friends with, and sometimes their energy makes me anxious just because of right. how, how they exist in the world. Do some people have a bit of a predisposition to anxiety just as a low level stress the whole time? Right. Yeah, we, we think of almost like a tripod of risk for anxiety. So um, one part is biology. The next part is social circumstances, environmental factors, and finally, learned factors or psychological factors. But you're honing in on um, kind of biologically we do describe folks as having a baseline level of anxiety sensitivity, those folks that are just naturally wired for sound. And that can actually be really helpful in a lot of different situations with being you know, more reactive, a little bit more jumpy, just running at a different motor. Um, but then we think of people that have that baseline anxiety sensitivity um, can start to interact with some of those other factors. Mm -hmm. So if they're in um, types of social situations or circumstances, that again are more unpredictable, uncontrollable, and uncertain, they may feel that anxiety a heck of a lot more than, say, the average person mm -hmm. who may not have that level of anxiety sensitivity. Dr. Craig, I'd like us to kind of zoom out of this for just finally. And I'm curious to get your take on what you think the future of mental health and well-being actually looks like. I don't want you to be all rosy and positive if that's not how you really feel. But I think it's quite important to think about this being a moment in time and perhaps what the future could hold. If you were, if you had a crystal ball, what do you think would be in it? All right. Well, that, that gives me a lot of leeway. Um, <laughs> so we know at, at baseline, you know, about 20 to 25 percent of the population struggle with anxiety to the point where it becomes a disorder at some point in time in their life. And then over the course of the pandemic, that's increased. You know, the World Health Organization has estimated that's increased globally by another 25 percent. So that is a huge proportion of the population. And it comes back to the idea that the world is a busy and stressful place. I think one of the things that actually has been been helpful as time has gone along is there's much um, better mental health awareness going on. I think at this point in time in, in my career, it has not um, been any better than reducing mental health stigma. So people are talking about this a lot more. They're looking to seek you know services. There's um, investments by governments and, and companies and agencies to try to address this as well too. So I think the future of mental health actually, while mental health conditions are on the rise, we're also seeing on the rise investment in mental health infrastructure. Of course, more needs to be done mm -hmm. in that in that direction and creating multiple pathways for individuals. I think a huge advancement has been in the electronic delivery of mental health interventions. So something you know as simple as uh, doing video visits, that helps to cross a wide geography. But you look at mental health apps, um, AI, um, there's lots of, of technological solutions that I think will help bridge that care. So once again, as the world becomes a stressful place, where I'm also looking into the future that there's going to be 
multiple, multiple avenues and very novel types of interventions to be able to help out uh, individuals who struggle with anxiety. It's funny, isn't it? That kind of the flip side of the same coin with technology. Sometimes it helps and sometimes I want to throw my phone in the sea and go and live in a log cabin in Norway. If anyone wants to join my commune by the fjords in Norway, message me on 4001. Dr. Craig, thank you so much for your time, for getting up extra early, speaking to us from, is it snowy in Minnesota yet? Where are we on October 31st? Yeah, un, it's unusually pleasant. It's about 50 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, which is completely unusual for this time of year, but I'll certainly take it. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Dr. Craig Sorchuk speaking to us there from the Mayo Clinic. Um, please don't hesitate to get in touch. If there's any other mental health issues you'd like us to address, um, any doctors you'd like us to connect with, with, we're very much here to help here on Dubai I 103.8. This is your platform, and we want to make sure you are not going to Dr. Google, but instead going to the best in the business. This content is for information purposes only. If you would like to seek medical treatment, please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalized advice and diagnosis. Life Balance on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Women of the UAE, have you found your tribe yet? If not, our next guest might be able to help you with that. We're speaking now to the co-founders, Sue and Achata from Women Who Thrive, talking about friendship, finding your tribe, but also tackling some of the subjects that you might have problems talking to yourself about. So they're bringing in the experts to help you get your head around it. Now, so I hear that you started in, like, I think like a lot of really great ideas were born out of the pandemic. First of all, how did you guys meet? Um, just, hello everyone, by the way. <laughs> um, Chester and I met... Uh, just through social, going out in Dubai, um, going to brunches, we kept seeing each other at the same place and like, oh, I saw you here last week or I saw you there last week. We must grab a coffee for three years. <laughs> Every time we saw each other, it was that famous line, we must grab a coffee, but never, ever, never within that three years grab that coffee. And then one day, finally, we set, a, set up a pool day. Didn't, not, not even the coffee, that went out the window. We set up a pool day, met each other and had a great pool day and couldn't stop talking about business. So it sounds like this business or idea <laughs> is solving a lot of problems for a lot of women. Just, you know, tell us a little bit of what kind of need was being unmet, do you think, before you came along? So I think that actually it all started because Sue went to dinner with a few of our friends and um, everyone was sat around the table, you know, everyone's like, oh, I'm good, I'm good, until someone breaks the mold and and it's like, I'm not good. And I'm not good because of this reason, that reason. And we're really fortunate because we were surrounded by lots of entrepreneurial women who were doing lots of side hustles and lots of big, starting new businesses during the pandemic. So where Sue watched that ripple effect of people saying, you know what, I'm not good because of this, that and whatever reason. And then other people around the table having solutions to others' problems. She came to me and was like, this was amazing. We need to get more people together to help each other, basically. So we just started something small, actually, in Sue's house. And everyone felt amazing. And we literally sat down straight after and planned the next one. Um, so I think what we're doing is just bringing people together. So helping people make those connections that they're not being able to find elsewhere. Not necessarily because they can't, but because they might not have the means or they might not have the time mm -hmm. or energy to go out there and seek it themselves. And presumably it's quite reciprocal. You know, you might have someone in that room who might be there with a problem or an issue, but they might have the answer to someone else's problem or exactly. issue. A hundred percent. Do you sometimes feel quite collaborative in that sense? A hundred percent. Like the first event we did um, at my house, originally it was... For us, we had another business that we'd set up and it was literally just to create content because we were coming out of COVID and we wanted to create content for that. We didn't anticipate how powerful it would be. And we thought, okay, me being the cheesy person, I was like, everyone sit in a circle of trust and we're going to introduce ourselves and talk. And then it was just literally one, someone would say one thing and the other person who didn't think that they had all the answers or they were, had no knowledge within that topic was like, well, actually, I've gone through something like that. Have you tried this or have you seen this? Or it, it was just the, that effect of being able, like not know, even leaving, not knowing that you could have helped someone. Mm -hmm. You actually left that powerful And there feeling. is massive power in that vulnerability to be that first person to break the mold and say, I'm, I'm not okay. And I think it sounds like what you've created and continue to build a really safe space for people to not be okay and to lift each other up and to leave feeling better and brighter about the world. Mm. Shata, what are some of the issues that you're hearing in the community? <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the big ones for Dubai in general is people just finding friendships. Um, there's 
Facebook is huge out here in terms of networking and socializing or buying and selling things. But there's also lots of women on there who continuously writing, you know, I've just split with my boyfriend and I'm lonely or I've just moved here and I'm lonely or my friends have left. I have to say I've noticed a huge increase in those kind of posts. Mm, And it's, you know, like you say, it might be I've just moved here and I've got kids and I'm looking for children to have a play date with or I've moved here and my marriage or relationship has broken down or I've moved here, I've been living here for a while and all my friends have left. Yeah. You know, and where does that where does that leave you? And I always think that takes such guts to write that post. And it always is met with such lovely messages going, me too, or, you know, I'm in the Springs or I'm in Bird Dubai, you know, let's meet for a coffee. I don't know how often that actually happens. Um, so I think the fact there's a, a network that's in existence where you're going to get like-minded people. Message here, so asking how to join. <laughs> <laughs> Follow us on Instagram, women.whothrive. And you can find our website there, link in the bio, all the events coming up, all past events if you want to just, you know, have a little rummage through. What's the goal for this? So what's what's your kind of, I don't want to say, what's the dream? But where would you like to see this go to? Um, For us, it's endless where we want to see it. but, But... Initially, they're like the, is to bring people together and to let women gain some knowledge in the different topics and just seeing people connect. Um, and the one thing that we both are concentrating right now is as women breaking down the barriers of having the conversations on different subjects and the taboo subjects that still, for some reason, in 2022, is still hard to talk about, whether it be um, egg freezing, menopause, uh, finding friends, um, connecting, finding yourself, being vulnerable, these kind of conversations. We want to be able to ha- provide that space where women can come and be their authentic self and have those conversations. Achasa, it must, must be quite lovely to see women creating friendships in front of your very eyes. Literally, I love it, you know, because there's all this other stuff that goes on behind the scenes for myself and Sue, plus us working full-time jobs. So, you know, it can get really tiresome. Mm -hmm. But when we have those events, it just makes everything worth it. And, you know, when you see them later on and you've seen people connect with their business and they're doing really well or people have got clients or people have made those actual good friendships where they're continually, continuously seeing each other Mm -hmm. over a course of however many months, we're just like, this is exactly why we do this, you know? So what's coming up? How can people get involved? Cost involved? What's on the diary? Um, So tomorrow we actually have a webinar coming up. Uh, We have Helen Morris. She's a financial expert who will be talking about um, your relationship and building a relationship with money. So if you're interested in that, head over to Instagram get onto the bio you can i think it's 50 dirhams to join the webinar tomorrow yep um so we have that coming up that it's a 20 minute webinar tomorrow evening honestly it's worth it um and then in december chessa in december we're doing our first winter market so we're really excited about that that's on the 4th of december december yeah (laughs) (laughs) sunday sorry um So that's really exciting. If you're a vendor, you have a small business, if you have a large business and you want to come and showcase your things, then please get in touch with us. Um, We would love to have you there. The more the merrier. Send us a DM. We're always on our Instagram account. Slide into into their DMs. Slide straight through. There's an offer. Yes. (laughs) Chasa Sue, thank you so much. Thank you. I really would love to have you back and explore the idea of female friendships a little bit more because I think there's a lot of... um, kind of peacocking around female friendships Absolutely. and a lot of you know isn't this amazing I'm so popular and look at all my friends and I think an awful lot of people don't feel like that if they're, if they're being honest with themselves so any way we can help people make friends build friends acknowledge loneliness which is a very 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 common emotion here in the UAE um We'd love to talk about that further. In the meantime, though, Women Who Thrive, if you want details of their website, their Instagram, drop me a little message on 4001. I'd be very happy to send you those links. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank Thank you. Life Balance on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. (laughs) Trying very hard to keep a straight face because it's a very spooky Ludmilla Malava that I'm looking at now. Or should I say, Your Highness, how are you? Yeah, I think you meant to say royal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Cleopatra, I believe, speaking to us live from HPL, the Malavant Fluka. Happy Halloween, yes, Ludmilla. Yes, from the other world. Yes, happy <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> I'm going to have to put this on Facebook Live. You look absolutely spectacular. Um, we have got a lot 
to get through in the next few minutes, Ludmilla. So let's buckle up for, for a busy one. Let's have a quick look at the headlines, if you don't mind. Retirement age for employees in the UAE. I've seen a lot of messages, a lot of WhatsApps around this. Um, can you break it down for us briefly? What does the law say about working legally to a certain age? Indeed, uh, the UAE labor law does not actually set a retirement age limit. Uh, and the previous labor law did have a reference to the age of 60 as being retirement age and then subject to uh, to special accommodation or exceptions. But the new labor law does not make any references to um, retirement age at all. And that's as far as the labor law is concerned. Now, there are certain uh, companies or industries or businesses which may set uh, their own specific retirement age, but it is really more internally mandated and not legally mandated at all. So there is no legal retirement age for experts to work in the UAE. Uh, Furthermore, with regards to owning your own business or being a shareholder, a partner of your own business, there is no limitation to how old one can be in order to set up a business and and be listed as a shareholder, nor was there ever a limit to that. Uh, Now, interestingly enough, as for the UE immigration law, the new immigration law, the retirement age for residential purposes or for residency purposes is 55. So in other words, if you want to get a retirement visa, that's different from working in the UAE. So if you want to have a retirement visa, you are considered to be of retirement age as of the age of 55. So for employment purposes, no age limit for a residence purposes, it's 55. Okay. We need any clarification on that. You know where to get us. A message here saying, please help. Very bad situation. Can a Western father block a child's passport or block a child from exiting a country with the mother if the parents are not married and the kid's passport is western and not born here the kid is eight they've just been here six months and the visa is under the mum's sponsorship does that does that add up to you what would you advise in this situation it does sound quite urgent the the short answer is yes it is possible and it's possible through and it's possible for both parents either the mother or the father uh, to request through the court for a temporary travel ban on a child uh, until some other uh, either consent from the other parent or until divorce proceedings are finalized or until whatever legal issue may have to be resolved. So it is possible. And that particular request or tool is available to both parents equally and equally. So you could the parent it can always request for the travel ban to be lifted. OK, staying with with children, actually, uh, no name on this one saying my husband has finally got his visa stamped into his passport. Fingers crossed that Emirates ID should be ready in the next couple of days. Now, the next big step is him sponsoring our two daughters. I've done a search and it says he can only do this. when We have a permanent rental. Is that still the case? He's on a self-sponsored remote visa. So we don't have an agent or a company helping us. Hence us being a bit clueless. Help. Yes. So if uh, for purposes of sponsorship, in order to sponsor somebody under your visa, under your residency, you do need to show that you're able to house those people uh, in a place that's appropriate for um, whoever it is that you're trying to sponsor. So if you ha- if you're trying to sponsor your children, uh, then you need to have a place that's big enough at least to uh, to house your two children. If you want to, for example, sponsor your domestic help, equal to so, you need to show that there is a place for a domestic uh, employee uh, to reside in the house. So there, there is a requirement, uh, housing is a requirement uh, to be able to sponsor dependents. Uh, and now it can be uh, either a rental agreement or it can be a title deed if you own property. Uh, some people rent uh, hotel rooms, for example, on a long-term uh, basis. So there is no Ijari agreement per se. Uh, but it is possible to use that, for example, hotel long-term lease agreement uh, for proof of residency. Just got a very quick follow-up message here saying, Helen, I'm in the same boat. I've just come over on a one-year remote work visa, finally got stamped on Thursday. I now need to sponsor my son. Um, I don't have a yearly rental agreement, but I've got a six-month one with everything included. Would that be enough? It, it could work, yes, especially if you're on a one-year visa, that could work. Okay, I hope that helps. Um, a message from Alex here saying, Hi both, my car has been damaged by liquid, sorry, liquid leaking onto it in my office parking garage. I flagged it with security in the car park and with the management in my company and nothing. I don't have the option to park in another spot and I worry about the impact it's going to have on my car's value. Would a letter from a lawyer help? 
It's going to be one of those things that's going to annoy you every single day. Every single day, you'll be looking up at the ceiling in that in that parking garage and be like, oh, it's so annoying. Indeed. If, if I thought that a letter from a lawyer would be effective, I certainly would uh, uh, would say so. But it would not be. It would just be uh, throwing good money after bad. I think a better option is to call the police uh, because it ultimately result, amounts to uh, the property damage or vehicle damage. So the police can get involved. So you can just call the police. They will document it. And on the back of that uh, police report, uh, first of all, the police can be very effective in terms of uh, reasoning with the building management. Uh, and uh, having them address the situation. Uh, alternatively, if their building management still does not do anything, which actually they should with the police's, I think, uh, encouragement, so to speak, uh, you can use that police report later on to, for example, file an insurance claim uh, or even file a civil claim against the building for compensation for the damage to your car. Good answer. Alex, I really hope that helps. Life Balance on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. You are listening to your free legal clinic, Ludmilla Malava, on hand to help answer my questions, but honestly, most importantly, yours. So if you do have any issues relating to, my goodness, we've had it all, property, visas, employment, gratuity, contract, this is your chance. You can be anonymous if you prefer. And going to the text line, message here, Ludmilla, saying, can a landlord demand viewings of the property if they haven't sent us an official letter for an intent to sell? Interesting order of events there. Indeed, uh, some of it depends on the contract, on the underlying contract. Um, it, it is possible, though I haven't really seen one, uh, that there will be a clause in the contract allowing allowing landlord to show the property even without the, the notice uh, for sale. Uh, so if contractually it's uh, it's an agreement, then obviously both parties agree to it. So legally speaking, the landlord has the right to do so. Uh, that being said, so I think if the order of events perhaps is less relevant uh, and um, and also because it is possible, for example, that the landlord does not want to sell, evict the tenant and wants to sell the property rented mm, to the new owner. So you don't necessarily need to serve the eviction notice if you want to sell the property. It may be that the new owner wants to buy a property already ten- tenanted. Uh, so, for, But on the issue of viewing, uh, the, um, the request to view ultimately is up to the tenant to, uh, to, to agree or not to agree because... And it depends on the the notice uh, and also the frequency of such visits because mm, there are a lot of tenants that complain that landlords just show up at the door or want to be able to view the property last minute or want to send agents uh, or com- come in themselves and take photos of the properties or of the property inside. And a lot of tenants don't feel comfortable, first of all, having their place photographed, one, or two, just uh, having uh, land- landlords uh, waltz in at any point in time or on a regular basis. So to that, you know, with regards to that, uh, there is the tenants obviously have the right to privacy. But they don't have to allow an, a landlord or an agent to come and photograph the place from the inside. Uh, and equally so, they don't have to allow the landlord to come in any, at any point in time and uh, because ultimately they rented this property to be able to enjoy it. Mm, so if all these frequent visits get in the way of enjoyment of the property, then legally speaking, tenants also have the right to refuse. I really hope that helps. It kind of reminds me of my dad's favorite phrase, which is, you know, sometimes it's more important to be nice than it is to be right. So legally, yes, it is possible. But it sounds like, you know, conversation needs to be had about what's what's agreed between between tenant and landlord. But good good distinction there, Liv Miller, in terms of eviction. It might, it might be a different set of circumstances. Anonymous message here um, asking, when will the 180-day grace period begin for those cancelling visas? It still seems to be 30 days at the moment. Yes, so this is one of those um, cases where the law is being implemented. And because it's such a such an overarchingly fundamental a change to our current immigration law, that, that so we just need to be realistic uh, that it will take some time for different aspects of this law to uh, uh, to be implemented at different levels. So for the time being, so the law in print is, is in effect already, and some of the visas and some of these new amendments are already in place, but others such as the 180-day grace period obviously is still a matter of time, uh, but it just, I think we just need to be patient and uh, and realistic about and pragmatic about how quickly these fundamental changes can take place. And we will keep you posted, as I'm sure Lyd Miller will, across her social media channels as well. T is asking, hi Lyd Miller, any salary requirements to sponsor a nanny and any other requirements in light of the new visa regulations? Good question in terms of clarity. What do you need to do to tick those boxes? It's a good question. The law itself does not specify or does not set any salary requirement. 
And this is quite typical. So the salary requirement usually is set either by regulations or uh, circulars that will be um, issued later, or these might be sort of more like internal almost mandates. Uh, but in the past, I will tell you that you needed to have at least about 10,000 dirhams to be able to uh, to, re to hire uh, at least a, a dependent, especially if you're a woman. Uh, for a maid, it depends again if you're a man in the past, I think it was enough to just ha to have a salary of five or 6,000. So it's a bit of a moving target, uh, but anything between five, I think anything above 10,000 dirhams will most definitely qualify you to uh, to hire a maid. Okay, hope that helps, T. An anonymous message here saying, Hi, looking to resign and give the two-month notice that's required by contract. My new start date is mid-January. Two months from now ends the year and I'd be eligible for end-of-year bonus. I've read the details and it said I have to give two months notice, but they can choose to cut my, shorter, my notice shorter. If they do that, I don't get my year-end bonus. If they, if they cut my notice shorter, is there any compensation I can get because they didn't allow me the two months? Oh, it's tricky oh, yeah. timing, isn't it? Tricky. Yeah, indeed. Well, so so two things. One is just because the company decides to cut the notice shorter does not mean that they are actually cutting the notice shorter. They can choose to ask the employee not to come into the office, but the notice and the period of notice remains the same. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's still two months and they will have to pay for these two months and they will have and all the benefits will accumulate uh, and it will accrue until the end of the notice period. Uh, so the only option the company has is to ultimately ask the employee not to come into the office, but not to shorten the notice. Uh, that's uh, So that's that's the most important one. With regards to the bonuses, the way the courts look at bonuses is the bonus is something that's earned. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's less about when it's supposed to be paid, but it's more about the period during which it was earned. So in this particular case, I would argue legally from a legal standpoint, you're absolutely entitled to your bonus. And it's less about what the when the company chooses to pay to you and it's exactly for these very reasons because it would be too easy for the company to abuse this and just terminate employee right before the bonuses are due. So that as far as the courts are concerned, they will most definitely grant that bonus to you. Really good distinction there in terms of time spent in office might be shorter, but the time on the actual contract will be honoured according to the notice period. We've run out of time. We haven't run out of questions. We just had a really interesting one regarding damage to villas as a result of construction work, which I will send to Ludmilla and we'll address this next week if you're able to wait that long. In the meantime, though, you can find Ludmilla Malava at HPL Lamalava and Paluka and across social media too. Are you off trick-or-treating now, Ludmilla? Because it looks like you are. Oh my goodness, I've been trick-or-treating for the last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going home to do a pretty significant edit of my children's candy. Some is going to go into my tummy, <laughs> some is going to be donated because there's no way they can get through all of those spoils. Ludmilla, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your advice. Thank you. Really do appreciate it. As I said, if we didn't get to your question today, we will absolutely put it aside so we go at the top of the show um, for next week. regular listeners of Dubai I-103.8 will have heard the excitement building over the last couple of weeks because we are having our treasure hunt to Treasure Island this weekend. The winners have been chosen and they're going to be heading to the stunning Anantara Sabanias Island Resort. We're joined now by the general manager, Godric Harang, is with us. Sir, thank you so much for your time today. I'm sure everything's very busy in the run-up to this weekend. Um, I just wanted to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about the island. For anyone who hasn't been there, can you paint us a bit of a picture about what people can expect when they arrive? Yeah, certainly, Ellen. Well, um, Sibanias is, uh, is a very important island for the UAE, right, which is located about an hour, 45 minutes from Abu Dhabi on the western side, uh, far west in the western regions. It's an important island because the ruling family uh, and the leadership originally come from there before Ireland, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it was an island that was particularly important to Sheikh Zayed because he considered it the green heart of UAE, right? He planted three million trees there, created a conservation park to salvage the Arabian oryx in the 1970s, and that's an island that he really loves to spend some time on. So for anyone that hasn't been there, it's really, really quite different because it's uh, inhabited by about 10,000 uh, animals uh, today, which um, are roaming around the islands. It's, it's very, very green compared to everything else that you'll find in the UAE, right? With a, with a variety of, of vegetation that is, uh, for the most part, endemic to here. Um, but thanks to a very intricate system, you know, it is, is, is doing very well. And so, so it, it is very, very much a site that you do not see in many other places. Also, 
because the island is considered as a conservation area, the waters uh, around the island are, you know, are non-fishing water, which means that you've got a lot of fish for snorkeling and the waters are just beautiful. Oh, wow. Sounds like absolute paradise on earth. And you're talking about the animals there. The array, you know, it's almost like having a, you know, a mini safari when you when you step off the off the boat. So, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for for letting us take over the island um, this weekend. Um, we have chosen our winners who are going to be there to dig up some treasure. What can they expect from their stay? Yeah, we we're very excited to partner with ARN and then with you guys and Dubai to to you know bring bring these folks here and, and try and find some gold. So we've got about 100,000 dirham uh, of gold, which wow. is hidden on the island in different spots, um, which I know about, but I <gasps> promise I won't say where it. Oh, and, no! Uh, <laughs> that uh, must be torture! Right? <laughs> my, word, my, my, mouth is, uh, my mouth is tight. Um, but they'll be, they'll be digging around the island to, to, to find the gold, and, and hopefully, well, I wish them all the luck, right? There'll be a few happy winners. Uh, we've got a few different spots where it's hidden. Uh, it's, it's hidden quite deep, so uh, people are going to have to dig, I can tell you that. And then there's a range of activities right, that, that people are going to be able to do around the island. We've got, as you mentioned, right, the Natural Drive, which is fantastic, which is a great, uh, great. Uh, I call it the safari teaser. Right? Anyone that has never been to Africa, it's the closest thing you can get. And and um, and the nature walk also, which is fantastic. And then we should have a little bit of wind, so anyone that is looking at uh, trying some uh, kite surf over the weekend, for example, is going to have a blast. <gasps> that sounds amazing. Okay, now I love talking about food. What about restaurants and the food that's going to be served up? So we've got um, a few different restaurants, right? We've got an African restaurant located in uh, Ananta Al Sahel, um, which is our resort which is located in the savanna. So it's a resort that is very green with a lot of animals around. It has a bit of an African vibe, I have to say, hence the African restaurant. So expect some delicious meat and barbecue and, and braai, right, as we would say in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And then we've got a Mediterranean restaurant in our villa resort, um, which is on the beach, uh, Ananta Aliam. It's a beautiful resort, my favorite one, located on a one-kilometer-long white beach and, you know, gorgeous turquoise water, uh, amazing food there. We've got fantastic pizza uh, and, and terrific, you know, Italian food and Spanish food over there. And then in the main resort, we've got one uh, Southeast Asian inspiration uh, restaurant called uh, um, Amouage. And then we've got an Arabic restaurant, which is called uh, Al Shams. And then we've got our old dining, obviously, the palms, right? So wow. wide variety <laughs> of food that you can get. It sounds like they're going to have their... Uh... The energy well and truly sorted for all of that digging. Thank you so, so much for spending some time with us this afternoon. But as I said, for looking after the whole uh, Dubai Eye team as we get really excited for our treasure hunt and treasure island. Uh, Gara Karang, thank you so, so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful week ahead. And uh, try and try and resist the temptation to get your, your spade out <laughs> and enjoy, enjoy the dig over the weekend. Take care. Bye. Thank you Thanks, so, so much. Bye-bye. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.